I eventually got to a piece that's called I quit, I give up. And I, and I got a, like just a simple branch from my yard. Uh, it was very important to me to use materials that were like in my possession. So I got this branch from my yard, a piece of like scrap from my studio and made a little flag. And I documented this block of ice in the water, like this little island just melting and melting. And then, you know, a bunch of this little white flags like flapping in the breeze and it just collapses and it all just melts and sinks away. Because it, again, this whole idea of just the time that we're here and, and how long things take and the courses they run, you know, like nothing's permanent, right? So that kind of amplified that, that thought as well. Welcome to the Studio Rake Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 230th episode, I'm excited to be joined by an artist and dear friend, Kate Kaminsky, who spoke with me from her studio up in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. We talk all about her work, of course, her background in the arts and experiences making art. She began as a ceramicist and explored a variety of different sculptural forms, installation, and of course, various mold making techniques, iron pouring, and all sorts of stuff that we will talk about. And it's interesting because she eventually kind of circled back around to her roots in ceramics, where she's currently producing a variety of work for her shop, the Habitat Shop, and of course, making fine art. You can find her on Instagram and follow her, the Habitat Shop, and then her other work at Kate underscore Kaminsky. So be sure to follow her there. And last but not least, you can find her website, KatherineKaminsky.com. And of course, we'll talk all about her work in depth coming up in this interview. So stay tuned for that. Before we get to that, I do want to encourage you to check out studiobreak.com and see some of the varying artists that we've had featured on Studio Break. Each of our posts have images of the artist's artwork and links to their website so you can find out all about them. You can, of course, listen to the interview right in the default player or just click those links and you can subscribe to Studio Break in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Play or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also... Find us in social media, so be sure and like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter, at Studio Break, and of course on Instagram, be sure and follow, at Studio underscore Break. And with those brief announcements, let's dive right into this interview with Kate Kaminsky. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Kate Kaminsky, how are you doing? I'm good, Dave. How are you? I am excellent. I know that we talk pretty much like regularly now, so mm-hmm. this should be a very easy, easy interview. But I love, you know, talking to people that I know and then figuring out stuff that I didn't know about them. So where did you grow up, first of all? Because I know we're going to dive into everything else, but I I don't even... Are you from Wisconsin then? No. I, that sounds horrible. I like <laughs> Wisconsin. Wisconsin. <laughs> um, sorry, Wisconsin. I was born in Chicago, like in the city. And lived in a small suburb right outside the city for a couple years. And then my dad got transferred through his work. And we actually lived in Wisconsin for a couple years. We moved back to the suburbs, the south suburbs of Chicago. And I spent my formative years in a suburb called Orland Park. Have you ever heard of that, Dave? It is not too far from where I'm at right now. So Yes. So I know where you are. A small world. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. I imagine you totally wrecking stuff all around the house when you're young. Like just No. No. I was a perfect child. Wow. I really was. My my brother was 
was the one that was difficult. And I thought when I had kids that I would have perfect children and that has not uh, been the case. (laughs) It skips a generation, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. So did you do like creative stuff when you were a kid? Were you like drawing and painting and like baking stuff in ovens? I don't know. That's funny you said that. Yes, I very much love to draw and I come from a very creative family. My dad's side immigrated from Poland and they didn't have a lot. And so they did a lot of like making of things, quilting, knitting, my great aunt for Christmas because she had so many children and there were so many cousins and she had several siblings herself would make like handmade ornaments out of like paper clips and beads. And it sounds like very basic, but she was this magician was able to make these beautiful, like just stunning ornaments. And I'm, I'm thankful that I have a couple. And my aunt went to the art Institute in Columbia in Chicago. So my aunts are not that much older than me. They're like nine and 11 years older than me. So I was exposed to them always being creative so I think it influenced me to be even more so. So I, I actually really loved drawing when I was little. I remember getting an art kit, I guess. It, mm-hmm. They didn't have stuff like what we have now, like when you go to the stores and there's just like tons of stuff everywhere that you could get. It was like somebody kind of put together some art supplies and I was like super excited. And like the paper was really clean and it was white and it was a nice new pencil and an eraser. And I just had so much fun drawing. And then my mom's side of the family, actually her aunts, so my great aunts, they weren't artistic per se, but they were very involved in the arts. And my great aunt used to take us out of school um, when I was in elementary school. And we had moved back to the Chicago area at this time. Um, And she would take us to the Art Institute, you know, every year. And she'd give us a tour. And she did stuff with the Lyric Opera in Chicago. So um, I, I feel like I had a really like, well-rounded, I guess, encouragement of being creative when I was little. My dad is creative. Like he enjoys like woodworking and I guess interior design kind of stuff. But my mom is not creative at all. So she's always in awe of me just making things. Oh, that's cool. Again, it seems like a lot of creative people around. Uh, For sure. Was it something then easy in terms of like pursuing that? Did you, you know, go through a dye your hair black and listen to awesome music phase no. and and be like, I'm going to be an art person and, you know, write bad poetry and make mixtapes. You definitely did the mixtapes part, I'm sure. So I was like such a rule follower. I, I never got a detention in high school. Like I never did anything bad. Like I enjoyed art for sure. I had a lot of fun and I was super silly with my friends. I mean, I went to high school in the nineties, so it was like skater stuff and, like punk kids a little bit left over and I don't really do too many crazy things with my hair because I was scared my parents would get mad at me and the high school I went to actually had an amazing art department I think when you're younger um a lot of art classes are things that are easily you know easily done with the kids like drawing or maybe painting but you never really do ceramics right or sculpture Mm -hmm. and my high school had a really good program And I was able to take a jewelry class in high school and a ceramics class. And just that change of pace of making that way really got me excited to go into like the 3D world. I'm always curious about that too with your work because you kind of cross over a lot, you know, and obviously we'll talk about like, say, some of the installation work. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it seems like there's times where you 
you know, definitely straddle, you know, all of that stuff. And currently now, I mean, you're kind of like a mixed media artist, really, you know, in, yeah. in a lot of ways. So I like drawing, but I don't want to be made to draw. <laughs> and <laughs> sure. I, I like, it has to happen when I want it to happen. And then um, the 3D work, sculpture, mostly because it allows me to play with a bunch of different materials. So yeah, in high, in high school, I got to express all that. And it was, it was exciting, you know, to like have play with clay for a couple hours a day, a semester, you know, you know, you were just talking about all these different experiences with 3d processes and, and materials. Was that something that kind of guided you then towards pursuing it as an undergraduate? Well, I, I was unsure of the path I wanted to take after high school. I applied to college I went to Western Illinois University for undergrad and I went there because it was a good teaching school and both my parents had graduated there as teachers. Now neither of them teach, but they really enjoyed the program and I, I knew at the time it had a decent teaching or education college. So I, I was interested in that and they seemed to have an okay art department. And so I went to school with the intentions eventually of becoming an art teacher, like a high school art teacher. So I was certified to teach, let's see, sixth grade through 12th grade. And I've really only substituted in those, in those grades since graduating <laughs> from undergrad. I still have my certificate and I'm actually minored in history. So I could teach like social studies to, to that age group. However, when I was at school, I obviously continued to take art classes and I super, super enjoyed life drawing and also sculpting the figure. And I took ceramics and had a lot of fun, but it was all hand-built. I didn't really like throwing stuff on the wheel. It just was too limiting for me, I guess. I didn't like all the ways you had to conform just to get a shape. And it was a you know, pretty straightforward process that I, it, for me didn't allow for much variation. So I ended up doing a lot of hand-sculpting work in my ceramics classes in my professor well he eventually became my professor in sculpture came over one day when I was working on something and said you should take a uh, sculpture class and honestly I really wanted to but this professor scared me um, because he was like he was just a very intense man and I didn't know what to make of him because I had heard all these crazy stories about him but I eventually took uh, sculpture and really really enjoyed it but my program at in undergrad was very traditional kind of art kind of drew you in at the time then you know you were mentioning you know figure figurative work or you know certainly ceramics you've mentioned a number of times what, what kind of things were you looking at or getting excited about in terms of like wow people make art like this that's a good question I really like I said like enjoyed figure drawing so then I started doing a lot of figure sculpting and my sculpture professor at the time saw that I was pretty decent at it and he introduced me to Kiki Smith and I really really liked her work she was a first artist that I can recall that upon seeing her portfolio, I was like, wow, this, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to say with work. I love that she has the figure in her work. I love that she has these narratives and tells these stories and takes women's stories and sculpts them and, and, and makes them into something that I could identify with. And so I was pretty true figure sculptor in undergrad. I didn't vary too much. I mean, I might have played with a form and how I styled it, but I pretty much just sculpt the figure and anything related to that. When I left undergraduate, I kind of left at a weird time because I, I went for teaching. So 
I wasn't allowed to graduate with a double major in the same department. So they wouldn't let me graduate with a sculpting degree. And so basically like BFA in sculpture and a BA in education, I had to choose one. So I chose the education side. So I ended up doing my student teaching at the beginning in the fall. So I kind of graduated in, in a weird time. I graduated in the middle of the year after I was done with my student teaching. As I was student teaching, I was still making work in the evenings and weekends when I, when I had some free time. And I realized that I had a solid, I guess, traditional undergrad education. And I really wanted to push myself conceptually and look at art as like an athlete would look at a game and just train the hardest I could. So I decided to go to grad school and to see what I could make of it. Yeah. Well, and it seems like too, you could be in a situation, you know, where you're kind of double majoring and kind of not having all that in-depth time, certainly that you get in graduate school to really dive into yeah. it and, you know, get thousands of pounds of sugar. Um, <laughs> You're jumping ahead, Dave. <laughs> which we'll be talking about a little bit. Well, and also to be quite honest, in undergrad, I, I was, um, I was kind of lazy with my studies because I was such a good kid growing up that the few years I had of freedom in college, I kind of went a little nuts. So at the end of my time in undergrad, like my junior, senior, and dare I say super senior year, I had a lot of fun. And that's the time, Dave, I made mixtapes legit with a tape deck that I bought myself. <laughs> and I had my big stereo, which it's a babe. And I still have the same stereo that I got in like 1996, because it's my it's my favorite with my big um, Technic speakers and my Sony. Let's see, I've got my tuner, my tape deck, my tape player, and a CD player. It's pretty fancy. Nice, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like a archive of you know <laughs> things that uh, kids these days would like throw out. You know, so. I've had many people ask me why I still have it. I I love it. It still works and it, and it's awesome sound, and I can like turn it up super loud. Well, I always hated when you know you switched from you know cassettes and Walkmans to uh, CD players because they would skip. That was like a big thing it was like anti-skipping, you know, it was like, wow, this is amazing. I did have a Walkman and um, a Discman, right? That's yeah. what they were. Yeah. But this is how much I listened to my Walkman. I would rewind it just enough. So it would sound really like, like in the headset <laughs> to the point where I wanted to get back to the like lyrics in the song and then play it again. And with a Discman, it was a little bit more touchy. I couldn't, navigate it as well so i had some skills with my tapes yeah it's weird too i think you know there, there's people that grew up in that time that um, experience a more material world in that regards you know mm -hmm. as opposed to just downloading everything or streaming everything i'm i'm stuck in that but we'll certainly come back to music because i think that's probably how i met you is uh music <laughs> shooting through the floor but, you know, again, so so we met, you know, when you started graduate school, we both started graduate school at the same time. Yes, we went to school together, Dave. Yeah. Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Salukis, right? <laughs> Egyptian dogs. Yes, yes. So that was your time then to kind of really dive into it. Were you kind of psyched then to start, you know, exploring stuff? I was very excited. Oh, yes. I was like super pumped. I like was very serious when I said like, I'm going to just work as hard as I can because I knew I was I was didn't imply myself as best I could in undergrad so graduate school I really wanted to go for it and you know Southern had a nice program because it was three years long and they gave you a stipend and you could teach and so 
I know you were in the painting program, but I was in the sculpture program and we had, we had really awesome facilities. They still do. You could pour iron, bronze, aluminum, two full wood shops, you can fabricate like plasma cutter, welder, TIG, all that stuff. And I was just, cause I, I only worked with clay in undergrad my first year there because there wasn't a lot of pressure to make you know, your thesis work your first year there, I just played with all these new processes that I didn't necessarily get exposed to or didn't get exposed to them often as I should have in sculpture. And then, I mean, I think one of the coolest things about going to school when we went there is there was like, how many, like 30 of us, maybe like first years, more than that. I don't know. Somewhere in there. Like, but we like for the majority of it all got along really well. So I'm doing something that I've always wanted to try. And I'm with this group of people that, you know, by the end of it, we're like brothers and sisters. Like we had a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, everyone has like little tips or whatever, but I mean, for the most part, I feel like it was a really crazy, awesome, good time that, for three years, I got to hang out with really awesome people and make work. No, absolutely. And I think we've talked about this because, you know, we've been doing these group calls that, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to be doing a podcast for in the future. But, you know, it's almost like we've gone through something together. <laughs> no, it, it was. For Some sure. I 100%. Traumatic experience. So, it was, you know, yeah, when I left school, I was like, I don't know if I could do that again. But now, rose colored glasses, I'm like, oh, it was so much fun. Sure, sure. <laughs> Real life is, sucks sometimes. To kind of get back to the work, too, especially, you know, you talked about, you know, being influenced more in uh, making sculptural figurative works. Is this kind of when you started getting into more of the, I don't want to say fantastical narrative side, but I guess I just did? Yeah, that was awesome, Dave. Can you say it again? Yeah, fantastical <laughs> narrative side. So, no, you know what i I think I actively moved away from just doing the figure and anything that had to do with clay because I realized there was like fifteen gazillion other things I could do with sculpture. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the actual like human figure became morphed into um, animals or some other kind of personas or environments. I mean, I did all kinds of stuff. I did small installations on the walls. I made crazy big sculptures with figures that eventually started to not look like people anymore. And I think my first year I was really um, happy with what I made, but I was still like obviously wanting to push myself. Second year is kind of difficult because you you kind of have to start editing yourself a little bit and what's your direction you want to go into there was that year too, I think we had a high turnover rate of professors leaving. So there was new people coming in and, and other people leaving. So that was also interesting, just who you're learning from. And I realized like, and I think this comes maybe, maybe in undergrad, if you're lucky, but in grad school, like they always want to know why you're making work, who's your audience, what are you trying to say? And I was kind of struggling with that and really wanted to be able to figure that out. And, you know, I realized like, my interactions with my friends and people in my life was really the basis for my work. So I kind of started to become like a storyteller or make these narrative scenes where I would make my friends into animals and, and, you know, create these environments. And is that just a a love of animals or a way to disguise it and make it playful or. Yeah, probably to disguise it, to make it playful, to not make it so literal to not make it about a specific person. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, I didn't know if you had like a, you know, a secret. Oh, there are a lot of secrets. I just don't want to share them with you <laughs> and whoever else listens. <laughs> no, but I, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't something where like every Friday night you were just, you haul it up to the library and check out books of animals because you're like obsessed with animals or something. No, I think I, I always had a love of nature and I grew up in a home that supported that. Um, I mean, I did a lot of camping when I was a kid and I always loved the outdoors. So I guess to make somebody into an animal was a way for me to talk about that person or maybe the idea of a person in a way that it wasn't so literal. It's now super cliche, but I did a lot of stuff with like the form of a, of a buck in my work. So that was a representation of a person or a group of people that kind of took on that form. That makes sense. And I did the fantastical adventures of the dear, dear girls. And that just was me and my friends, my girlfriends in school kind of being silly. So some of these drawings I did, I think I actually traded you for like a print at one time, but like just etchings and stuff. Um, when I did go into the print lab and scare everybody, cause I was so messy, but yeah, just people became animals and it just became a lot easier. Cause I could be able to use myself as inspiration or story and not have to be so specific as who I was talking about, or I'm not personally just not want to share that, that specific person, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I, I think that's something that you can see in, in the work. I'm of course on Catherine I know I was lucky. I saved that a long time ago, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's a lot of that old archive work there too. So it's kind of cool to be able to go back and, and, and see, especially you know, I want to talk to you a little bit about your thesis show because it seems like, well, and that's cliche to say, but obviously that's like the culmination of all these things. So maybe talk mm-hmm. a little bit about how that got refined, especially because, you know, as ambitious is the big thing that I would say, right? I mean, give give us a, a take on it. Yeah, it was, it was big. As I was finding my voice with the, what I was trying to say with my work, I really enjoyed making work that went off the pedestal because so much of sculpture that I had known was stuff that you put on a pedestal. Like, how do you display it? How do you know, how do you light it? And I just kept kind of growing and making these environments. And first they started out really small, like something I could fit on like a tabletop. And then it kind of went onto my studio floor and, you know, through this, you know, obviously my inspiration, what I had for my storytelling slash, kind of creating and editing these environments um, ended up with my thesis show. We had the surplus gallery, as you know, it was a very large gallery and I got one side of it. And I think it was like 60 by 40 feet. And I had built these elevated platforms and literally took like trees down in my backyard. Cause I lived in a very wooded lot and glazed everything with a white coat of paint and, and had different fake, plants and flowers and such glazed everything in white. And then I literally sugarcoated everything. And then on these big, I built these big platforms. So I planted quote unquote, like all my like landscape materials and then got a ton, literally one ton of sugar and dumped it on these platforms. So, and then the way the viewer would be able to see this landscape as I built a life size hunting blind, which was like eight by eight feet I made it in my studio. So there was lots of things I learned when I was building installations, like how things look, how things smell, 
lighting. And there's so many things to consider when you're making an installation. So I wanted this to have a lived in field. So I built this whole hunting blind in my studio. Did you ever go down there and hang out with me in that? You know, I don't think I did. Okay, because it was up there for a couple of weeks. It's it's interesting to to see it, you know, especially the you got to wonder who lives here is basically my first instinct when I see this because it's you know just packed full of all sorts of you know things that you've made inside. Yeah, it was. It was like it was like everything. I put everything in there. Like if I liked it, I didn't care so much if the professors liked it, but if I liked it, I went in there. So it was drawings, etchings, just my little experiments with sugar. It was like my little hideout. And I mean, we would like hang out in this thing. I would work in there. I would eat my lunch in there. People would smoke in there, <laughs> like drink, whatever, just because I didn't want to smell like f- new fabric and paint. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So because I made it modular, I took it down and then I reinstalled it in the gallery. And the kicker of this whole show is like, so I bust my ass to put the show up and it took me a week to install it. And I was only allowed to show it for one day. <laughs> and then I had to take the whole thing down. I don't know if you helped with that, but we had to deinstall it the night it opened because the next day they were doing an award show for the undergraduates and they had to install their show. So for a while I was kind of pissed off because I was like, I, you know, it was a lot of time and money, right, to do this show. But in a way it almost seemed fitting because it was really something in my mind that was not permanent and it was never going to be permanent. It was never going to last. So the fact that my show was only up for like a day was almost perfect for like this narrative that I built about the show. Cause the title of the show was, I keep you here to stare at you when no one is looking. And it's just this like glimpse into something that is fleeting and then it's gone. Like literally it had to go away. And like that, three years is over. You know? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. So, yeah, I um, I found it interesting. Everyone was like, why are you using sugar? And the whole idea of, of it was it was this interesting material to play around with because it's something that, like sugar, can get you like super amped up. It's super sweet. It's super fun. But it's so saccharine. And if you have too much of it, it makes you sick. And I kind of felt like that was a good way to end my three years there. It's like, I'm done with this and I'm going to just move forward. Okay. So, so you put an end to this experience. You're moving on. What happens afterwards? Did you wind up teaching like right away or? Well, my mom's side of the family was from central Illinois. So we moved to central Illinois and this was the time when the IG of the internet, this is like 2007, like you could live wherever you want and show your work online. Mm-hmm. So that was my mentality. And we lived next to a pretty big city. It was called Pe- it's called Peoria, Illinois. Yeah, I started teaching um, shortly after graduation at a university in the area. I was teaching at more of a non-traditional university. It was geared mostly towards business students and medical students because I was teaching at a satellite campus. And I ended up taking like all the art classes. So I was teaching everything under the sun. And it was kind of crazy because, you know, I'm teaching art history to painting, but I did it. I learned how to be a better instructor and, you know, rocked it out. And then my husband and I decided to stay in the area. And then we bought a home in a town called Washington. And I was still teaching. I got pregnant with my first child. And then this is at like around the end of the recession. So in 2012, I had my daughter. And then 
because of the recession and the way it was going with that campus, I ended up losing my job right after I had her. Now it was pretty devastating to be a new parent and lose your job because I was going to continue teaching. And at the time, my husband was working full time and he was going back to school. So he was gone most of the time. And this is where I got the idea to use my art degree and start a little shop. And I decided to make the shop for like kid stuff, like wall hangings, nightlights, little planters. And so I started to do that and I worked on it for several months. And then unfortunately, it's kind of crazy. In November of 2013, my town got hit by a tornado and myself and about 1,200 other families lost their home. And it was uh, was pretty, I mean, to say devastating is an understatement, but that was totally crazy. So, and because it was in November, it was just a weird time of year. If there is ever a good time to have a tornado, because we had to go through the winter. Um, So that just took like to rebuild just took like another extra six months. So during that time, I actually, I know it sounds crazy, got a residency at the Prairie center (laughs) of the arts, you know, in, uh, in Peoria and they were really kind to me there and they just let me work. And I did this gigantic installation of, I guess for lack of a better explanation, like the property I had, like our, our yard mm-hmm. and the loss and destruction. I took a ton of cardboard and I basically just kind of made, picked and choose the things I saw from our yard and just how it got destroyed because the tornado was like super massive and built all these large trees to the ceiling. I think the ceilings in that building were like 10 feet high because it was an old factory, you know, eventually made the trees so they looked like they were falling over and destroyed and, and broken. I did a little bit of video work with this piece and I've never really done video work. So I did this whole installation. I took images of it and then I did stop motion and I set up a camera and took pictures of it like once an hour for 24 hours. And through the night when it went dark, I stopped the video and I covered the landscape in white paper, just plain white paper that I shredded because what had happened with our home is after we lost our house, you know, we're trying to pull things out and it's just like total wreckage. We started to rain and then it snowed like within like four or five days after losing everything. And it was just like, it was just nuts because it was just, everything was wet. And like, I remember standing in the basement of my house and just getting soaked because it was just totally destroyed. So I, I took that feeling, that emotion, and I covered this whole landscape with the paper. So the next day when this video or the stop animation's going, you could see like the ground is now dusted in this, in this paper, which is, you know, representative snow. And actually it, it was really good for me to make that and document it and help me, you know, work through some stuff and just allow me to have some time in my day that wasn't centered around being a, a new mom or dealing with a tornado. So, um, just keeping my mind busy. So my husband and I, we decided to stay in the area. We had good friends, good neighbors. We rebuilt our home. I built like, as I would say, my dream home. I ended up getting pregnant with my second child and about six weeks into that pregnancy, my husband came home one day and he, he said he lost his job, which was really like a total crazy blow. And the company he was working for was doing international layoffs. So like 10,000 people or more lost their jobs. 
And so I was pregnant and he lost his job and he looked for a job in the era for several months, but he ended up not finding anything. So he found a job in Wisconsin. (laughs) So he ended up leaving me when I was probably like four or five months pregnant and moving to Wisconsin. And I stayed back with our toddler at the time and uh, sold the house and left. And we ended up in Wisconsin. And I, by the time I got there, I was uh, about eight months pregnant. Oh, I forgot when I, when we built our house, I, um, I built a studio in the basement. So I was like, it's my dream house. I'm going to build a studio. So I, you know, did everything I always wanted. Um, I had a walkout basement. I had plumbing down there. I had an awesome sink, plenty of storage. And I started this shop up again, same idea. I was like, okay, now I'm going to do the shop again for kids stuff, but that all got put on hold. So we ended up moving to Wisconsin and the first year we lived here was just really tough for me. It was emotionally, it was just, um, it was a lot of loss to go through for, for so long that I just, it, I needed just to like, I, I don't even know how to put it in words really. It was just to get through it, you know, like every day, just move forward. So I started the idea of my shop again, and I called it the Habitat Shop. And I wanted to be creative but I did not want to think about anything because I was so tired of just thinking about stuff all the time. So I just wanted to make silly, fun, cute things for like your house. Right. So I did that. And then I also started to do a little bit of sculpture again. And yeah, that's how I ended up in Wisconsin, which I actually really enjoy living here. And it's been, it's been good so far. Going to a place that's so, you know, saturated with forests and, you know, being outdoors, I, I don't know, it seems like it would make sense. And where you live now, I think you've got like trees, you know, like everywhere, you've got all this property to kind of like, enjoy. Yes, you're totally right. Yeah. I mean, I went from a landscape that was like decimated by a tornado, right? So like, there was nothing left, like there were no trees to one of like, the the yard our backyard now is like a little forest and out of all the places we could have ended up the little town i live in it's called sheboygan wisconsin is is a very nice little town and we are right on lake michigan and it has been a joy and i guess i'd say even a blessing to be so close to the lake it's been it's been really healing and it's allowed me just to kind of chill out like just going for walks by the lake every day does does really help with your mind you know, just like watching those waves come in and out and knowing that whatever my life is, is just a blip on the radar compared to like the lakes, you know, and, and the rivers and the forest. I mean, cause they'll just keep going after we're gone. How long was it until you made this, uh, essentially model of your house out of, I think just cardboard and other materials like that? Yeah. So when I moved here, like I said, I started working when I was able to, I think my second child was like six months oldish at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I was able to just get enough time to start making work. So I'm working on the habitat shop stuff. I was, I was still feeling like a really profound sense of loss to lose two homes like that. So I took some of the moving boxes that we had and I built a scale model of my original home. I lost in the tornado and then the house we rebuilt and I stacked them on each other. I put them outside and I left them outside for a year and documented it um, on a pretty regular basis of just them decaying, you know, just kind of my way of letting it go. Well, it's really interesting to see the process of it too, or the various times, you know, Uh you know, especially like, especially when the snow falls or, you know, you start seeing these things start to disintegrate. Yes. 
which again is kind of interesting because you know the complete opposite of having a show that you have to take down in a day Mm -hmm. and obviously the scale of it and size of it's totally different but that you know that part's really interesting to me too and i'm i'm kind of curious have you done a lot of stuff that's like i don't want to say this is like a site specific piece and that there's you know there's still kind of like a pedestal and display but i mean have you done a lot of work that's kind of outdoors like that because there's something interesting about that no that was a that was the first piece I ever did like that. And it was the longest piece I've ever documented made because it was out there for over a full year. So my daughter's bedroom in both houses were in the front and her nursery at the time just got destroyed. So I did a little um, maquette inside the house of like where her crib and stuff was. And then in our new house, she had the front bedroom and I didn't really put too many images of this up, but you could look in the tiny little window I made and see like the crib and the bed in the different houses just get like wet, you know, saturated, decompose. It was interesting. And it was a hard piece because I'd lost these places and then I'm watching them get destroyed again. And at the same time, I was doing a little bit, did a, probably my only real piece of video work with the lake. And I was kind of interested in this idea of just being by myself and like the idea of like an island and just being alone. And I had cast these big blocks of ice in very large stainless steel mixing bowls because I wanted to make something that could float in the lake but not hurt the lake or pollute it in any way. Mm-hmm. So I cast these big blocks of ice. I did so many experiments where I would get up really early in the morning, go down to the lake, and take these blocks of ice with some pieces of string that I had to attach at the bottom to make them like an anchor and tie them to a rock. And I would just document them melting, how long it would take to melt the different size pieces I would cast, how long would they take to melt. And I eventually got to a piece that's called I Quit, I Give Up. And I and I got a, like just a simple branch from my yard. Uh, it was very important to me to use materials that were like in my possession. So I got this branch from my yard, a piece of like scrap from my studio and made a little flag. And I documented this block of ice in the water like this little island just melting and melting and then you know eventually this little white flag's like flapping in the breeze and it just collapses and it all just melts and sinks away because it again this whole idea of just the time that we're here and and how long things take and the courses they run you know like nothing's permanent right so that kind of amplified that that thought as well yeah and again to have the space to do it in or at least an area to do it in that you're kind of inspired from seems kind of interesting too for sure there's something really interesting about kind of putting that out there in like a real space and seeing how it interacts Mm -hmm. with the weather or exactly the way that you talked about like what essentially like casting it in you know but you're using ice as a material water you know essentially as opposed to you know something that you're laboriously building with your hands in the same capacity i guess yeah and it just the water like just goes back into itself so it just becomes you know the different state of water again I really like that piece because there's lots of different levels, I guess, that you can unpack that and, and, you know, put your meaning into it, whatever you want it to be. But it was pretty simple, but I think it was effective. And I, I did some other kind of small tests with that. But during this time, I was also working on my shop stuff and making it as much as I can, like full-time production because of how we left Illinois and I left my teaching jobs behind I don't think I I expanded too much on that. I did lose my full-time teaching job, but I ended up adjuncting at another university. So leaving Illinois in such a hurry 
And then moving here, I, you know, have zero connections. So I just threw myself like all of my professional self into my shop. It's been interesting to make work on a production level. I've never done that before. And I'm through this. I am now finding myself kind of, a, you know, the snake eating its own tail kind of thing, <laughs> making things out of clay again for fun. Like I'm back to clay, like where I started. So I've been doing some ceramic work and making very like small mats to take images of my work in. You were just talking about, you know, coming back to the ceramic work after, you know, all of this time you've been experimenting with these ice forms and some works outside. What's that been like to, to kind of dive into it? And again, you know, your Instagram shop, especially, which is the Habitat shop, there's tons of work on there. You know, I'm curious a little bit, you know, you talked earlier about not being a big wheel person. Are these all like hand-built kind of sculptures and ceramics? Or again, I don't know the best way to talk about it in a big umbrella fashion. No, it's okay. You're talking like um, a painter box. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. No, I, I'm, I'm being a smart ass. So I started off with the idea of making a nightlight for my daughter's room. So I sculpted, I think, five or six different little creatures. I have like a gnome, a robot, a bunny, a squirrel, a cat, and an owl. And I, I handmade all of them. And then, so I made plaster molds of all these patterns of like the, the squirrels and bunnies and stuff. And then I started working with porcelain, which was kind of jumping off the deep end because I've never really worked with porcelain. And I was working with a liquid porcelain called slip casting. So you have to have a certain, they call it viscosity to pour this into your molds. It sets your pattern, um, sets up inside this mold, you pop it out and then you have to fire it in a kiln. So that was kind of a learning curve. Um, had fun making those. And then by accident, one day when one of my patterns miscast, I realized like, hey, I could just cut a hole in these things and they make a cool planter or, you know, a little container for little knickknacks or things like that. So I started casting those with stoneware, which is, um, you don't have to fire it as high. It just has different surface qualities in porcelain. So I did those. And then I also did a line of just animal faces. I did a fox and a bear and made a mold of those and did my first sale, saw what sold and people really loved these animal wall hangings that I did. So I've, they've kind of evolved. Some of them I have fun with just experimenting with glazing and patterns and just make the animal's face like maybe my three favorite colors, make it super geometric. It's just fun and graphic for a wall. And then some of them have evolved to look more naturally, like stylized, like a real bear's face. And then I'll make them do crazy things. Like a one of my favorites is a fox smoking a cigarette with an eye patch. <laughs> and I've made this fox like with his ear kind of bitten off or like a fancy little like stereotypical French mustache, you know, like the pointy ends. Mm -hmm. I've put it like little forests on top of the animals' heads. And I've got all kinds of animals now. I've got rhinos. I have a tiger. I've got a buffalo. Again, these are all patterns. I have a bunny. So I can cast these, pop them out of the mold, and then work into them by hand and hand build little accoutrements for them. I'm curious, like, is this all like glaze work then in terms of the way that you're adding color to it? Because there's some that look really 
I don't know, different to me. Like they're almost like some that look like they're physically painted on versus glaze, but are they all glaze or am I stupid? No, or? they're no, no, you're not. Well, I wouldn't say you're stupid to your face, Dave, maybe <laughs> behind your back, but no, no, that's a good question. You can do whatever you want on these. Like if someone want, like I could paint them, but I feel like it adds to the quality of the work for glazing because when you glaze something, it has to get fired in a kiln to a certain temperature and it bonds to the clay body in such a way that it gives it that like certain sheen that you're looking for. Maybe it's a matte, maybe it's a gloss. It almost has like a glass-like surface to it. It repels water if it's a, if it's a certain kind of glaze. Um, it gives it a, a different quality. And I, and I really know very little about glazing. So this is a lot of like a learning process over the past um, year and a half, two years ish, I've been working on this shop. It's kind of like been a crazy little trip for me to sit in my studio and figure out all this technical aspects because glazing can be super technical. I mean, there are books and books and books on glazes and recipes. It's super chemistry based. It's very much indicative to how your kiln set up electric versus gas versus salt versus fire or raku. I mean, you can just go down the rabbit hole of, of ceramics. I mean, ceramics is a gigantic and very old and very amazing, you know, field to work in. So, I mean, I'm in my own little corner and sometimes it's frustrating. And then sometimes I'm kind of okay with just being a little bit of a rogue ceramicist and be like, I'm just going to do it like this and see what happens because it gives me the freedom to not be so strict. And that's how I approach most of my work, I think, is just kind of have fun with it. And and this is the longest I've ever worked in a material because I usually work with things that I have access to that I can easily get into and manipulate and have fun with and not be super bogged down by the process. I mean, mold making is a process. So sometimes that's like my least favorite part of the work, but, you know, making these little forest scenes with like little tiny mushrooms and ladybugs and butterflies and lichens and leaves on top of like a little bear head is fun just to sculpt that. So you've got all these multiples then. Is that something that like allows you a lot of freedom then to decide like, hey, I'm going to draw this weird geometric pattern or I'm going to like totally eyes yeah. all over this cat? Yeah. Do you like my cat eyes? No one no one likes us. Yeah, absolutely. I do. Um, I don't think. And I have a couple that are nightlights. So when you turn it on, it's just like these weeping eyes. And so I did that. That is actually a fun process for me because that's done with underglaze pencil. And that's just like a, it's very much like drawing. Um, you're just drawing on the clay body. It's a specialized pencil that can go into a kiln and not like melt off, right? But it's that very like immediate feeling of drawing on a surface. So you can get it wet and make it look like teardrops and you have them look kind of creepy, which again, I sort of like. And always the um, the little creepy aspects of things that I, the macabre sensibility that I think I sometimes uh, gravitate towards, people don't maybe like as much. I remember watching, um, I think it was an R21 interview with Kiki Smith, and she's like, I did all these prints of my dead cat, and I love them, but no one ever buys them. And so sometimes <laughs> I feel like, maybe my stuff's a little too weird, and no one, no one wants to look at it this way. No one wants to cry in my cats, but... You know, it's really just been like an exercise in me learning about ceramics and what I feel comfortable with. And a lot of the colors I do get and can achieve with success is done with underglazes, which is a lot like I would say like a gouache in the painting world. Mm-hmm. And in, in even terms and sensibilities of how they look and perform, they're very similar because I do like to work with gouache sometimes. And then I do like a matte glaze. And these are all low fire 
clay bodies and low fire glazes that I use, which means I just don't go super hot in my kiln. So I have more room to not mess up. So it seems like a lot of it then is just done by experimenting in terms of figuring out. I mean, are you, I would imagine you're not like drawing in a sketchbook and then thinking like, oh, now I'm going to put the eyes on this thing. It's just like playtime. Yeah, it's, it's like playtime. And from being quarantined with my children, I have now done a separate body of work that I would call, I refer to it personally, like within my, the way I separate in my head, I've got my um, habitat shop and that's my shop work. Like that's, you know, what I sell and, you know, make commissions and people want me to make them, you know, a smoking bear. I've done that, like that kind of stuff. And then I've got my studio side, which is stuff that I would gear towards, you know, maybe more of a traditional gallery route. And in quarantine and being, you know, home with my family 24 seven, and especially because my daughter, my oldest is now in second grade, being a, a school teacher for several months, I've, I've done this little body of work with basically that are about my kids and just making these silly, crazy pieces with them. And I'm having a lot of fun with that. And they're done in ceramic. They're, you know, they're all hand built. So none of this comes from a mold. I've glazed them, taking the techniques and things I've learned with my Habitat Shop stuff and setting them in a little environment um, and taking images of them, kind of making a little installation about them. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And again, I know that there's one particularly like that's inspired by your, your older daughter, which has like these really exaggerated long arms. It's mm-hmm. again kind of similar to the way that I think about it relative to the other animal kind of pieces because you can kind of accentuate different qualities about them to kind of maybe talk about, I guess in this case, a very literal person or people that you maybe disguised in previous work. <laughs> yeah, they're really whimsical and silly and things that you know, little, I guess, secret codes that I have with my kids that I, you know, I have super long arms um, because she's always grabbing for things or being silly or talking with her hands. I have another piece that I've done called Sisters that it's both the girls and there's a rainbow connecting the two of them. And I've made their eyes into like flowers just kind of fun because they're having kids is like a full-time job in itself. And then you know, just you're around your kids even more. So you get to see like how silly and amped up they can be. So everything's really bright and poppy and, you know, kind of loud. And then I also did a piece, which I'm actually having some technical issues with, which I think it's totally good. People talk about technical issues because it's, I mean, when you put something in a kiln, you're like praying to the kiln gods that it comes out right. And I did this piece. I sculpted, actually, um, I was sculpting it with you one time when we were FaceTiming with everybody it's it's more of a, a self-portrait of me. It sounds so sad, but I just had to do it. And I sculpted a head and it comes like right underneath the nose and she's crying these big tears and there's a puddle underneath her nose. And this is all supposed to be gold luster, but I have a crack in this puddle and I'm trying to figure out if I just want to like chuck it and start over again or just power through and try to make it work somehow. But um, all these pieces are inspired by quarantine. I'm working on another two that hopefully I'll get done in the next month or so, but, you know, trying to carve out time while being a full-time parent and being a practicing artist with kids is, is a chore. I mean, it is really hard. And anyone who has little kids, I'm sure understands that. I know a lot of my girlfriends that have kids and are practicing artists either 
stop making work, get really sad that they're not making work, or they just get in the studio when you can. I mean, one thing I, I've noticed about myself is that I'm very proficient when I'm in my studio. There's no screwing around. I get in here, I do my stuff. You know, it might be for two hours, it might be for a half hour, it might be for four or five hours if I could find it. But I mean, there's no like drinking coffee and listening to music. It's like, go, work, <laughs> done. So. Well, and what what's the turnaround for some of these pieces too? Because I would imagine some of the ones that are really sculptural, like the the ones with all the mushrooms popping off on them and stuff like that, I would imagine that stuff is a little bit more time-consuming than maybe some of the pieces that you have molds and then you're kind of like messing around with the way that you're adding glazes to it. And It takes a while, actually. Let's say I'm going to cast a bear. So I've got to get my slip out. I've got to mix it up. I pour it into the mold. It sits in there for about 30 minutes. I pour off the rest of the slip that's in there. So I leave a hollow image inside. If that makes sense, there's like, you know, I'm filling up the negative space with this slip, this clay material, and I let it build up for like 30 minutes. So I get like, I don't know, a quarter inch wall of, Mm -hmm. of material in there. And so I don't want it too thick. So I have to pour the rest of the material off. And then I let it sit there for like three or four hours depending on the humidity with my basement. Sometimes it can be six hours because I do work you know, like many artists do in the corner of their basement where they are allowed to have some space and get dirty. (laughs) Then once it's solid enough and can stand on its own, I pop it out of the mold. And then I usually let it sit overnight so it can just firm up because when you do a lot of handling on this piece and it's wet, it'll just collapse on itself. So all those hours of just waiting for it to dry are just gone because it's ruined. So once it's closer to what they call a leather hard state, I work into it while it's drying and while I clean it up. I um, will then do a lot of the hand building pieces like making the mushrooms, you know, or grasses or butterflies or whatever. And when it gets to a certain state that they're all a good, again, calling it a leather hard state, I do a lot of slipping and scoring, attaching these things, let it dry. So all that hand work, all the hand building, that's usually between four and 10 hours per piece. And then it goes into a kiln and that's called a bisque fire. I pull it out and then I glaze it. And that's like anywhere from an an hour to three hours of glazing and God willing, everything works out. Okay. I only have to fire it once or twice and then it's done. So every piece has, you know, roughly uh, 10 to 20 hours in it. Sure. Well, and I'm asking especially because, you know, you've got to juggle all these different responsibilities and then also carve out time for yourself. So I didn't know if you like, well, literally like write up a schedule or like, I got to get these many pieces done this week. Yeah. Or... No, I do. I actually have to write up a schedule. I usually do it by month because, you know, it t- you have to calculate drying times in, right? So I'm you know, like, let's say today, if this was like a work week, I'd be like, I've got to cast five pieces I try to do all the processes at the same time. So I cast only for a week. And then I like will do all the hand building with that following that. Then they go into the bisque kiln. And then I only do glazing because I have to switch everything over because I have to put other products away and get glazes out and stuff like that. So I don't want to I don't want to mix up too many different processes in the material. And then I'll get through all that and then I start all over again. So I'll start casting again. So you were just talking about all of these processes and pieces that you've been working on. What are they going towards? I, was, I believe there's like an exhibition or something that you have going on. 
before quarantine and COVID and all that, I set up my shows for the year that I want to apply. Cause last year I did my first real round of like festivals and fairs, which is totally new to me because I'm coming more from like a gallery world and, and showing that way versus like bringing all your stuff and like sitting in a tent and like talking to people, which is just, they're two different worlds. I mean, I feel like when you go into a gallery, there's a certain level of expectation of how people act. And then when you go to a fair, it's way more informal and people are really like excited to talk to you. And I feel like the nice thing about selling this kind of work and the price points it's at is it's a lot more accessible for people to buy. Like you're not looking at making a sculpture and say, I'm going to sell this for like $3,500, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, from my work from last year, knew how much I could, how many fairs I could do, which was, like I said, about four. And my first fair coming up was this fair at John Michael Kohler Art Center, which I had to apply for because, again, I guess the nice thing about living in this little town, like one of the perks of it is that we have an amazing facility here at the John Michael Kohler Art Center. And the Kohler Company is just right next door to me in Kohler, Wisconsin. So if you ever get a chance to go to this art center, like the bathrooms in this center is so cool. It's all hand painted little tiles of like little narrative scenes of all these crazy little animals and ladies. And it's just super rad. I don't know what the guy's bathroom looks like. Supposedly it's really exciting, but I haven't actually been in that one, but they get some really awesome shows in there. I I've been really impressed and I'm kind of a hard one to impress with that stuff, but they host their, their arts festival. So I applied to this before COVID and they were very generous to turn it around and make it a virtual show. And so all the artists that got accepted into the show are going to be online and through the website at John Michael Kohler, you can, you know, virtually shop at all the people that would have been accepted into the, into the fair, you know, had it been open. So, um, you'll be able to find my information and then it'll take you to my Etsy page, which that's where I sell my work from, or you can contact me directly, which is totally fine. Cause I'm, I'm fine. Like Etsy, I feel like is more of a storefront. And if you want to buy something from me directly, I almost prefer it because, um, I know it sounds horrible, but I don't pay the fees associated with Etsy. So, sure. <laughs> so, so just ask me. Well, and that's something that's cool too, because you know, following your Instagram page, there's lots and lots of commissions too. So Mm -hmm. people get into it, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, people love their dogs. So I do some dog sculptures, anything, you know, if you want me to sculpt your dog, (laughs) DM me on Instagram, people at the Habitat shop. What? (laughs) (laughs) And I know, I know too, you were, you're working on a a piece with a dog. And then as I'm out running today, (laughs) I keep noticing that uh, it's a, it was at a lab. Yes, it's a lab. Yeah, Do you want so, me to talk about that? So I'm seeing labs, you know, like as I'm walking around going like, oh, right. That's like Kate's piece that she's working on. <laughs> um, Yeah, I feel like we need to explain this now. Should I say yeah, something sure, about sure. it? Okay. Yeah, well, it's a fun piece. I had some time off where I didn't have to like work as hard for, for sales for festivals. And this is prior to quarantine. So I decided just for, for fun. I, and I did a couple pieces. And one of them was a dog taking um, a shit, basically, uh, on top of a little grassy knoll (laughs) next to a tree. And my humor, being so silly as it is, is the the cord 
uh, to turn to plug the lamp in is what is the excrement coming out of the dog's poop hole. Of course. So so <laughs> I found a really cool braided brown braided cord, and it will come out of the dog's arse. Yeah, and I've I'm glazing this right now. So it's silly. I mean, it's, I made it just to be ridiculous and to be you know have they have some humor. Well, I think that's one of the things that's really nice to kind of see, too, is that there's a lot of humor and playfulness and color. You know, you mentioned color. I mean, like, there's so much color in your work. So to kind of see, I don't know, that it's a different place to be in than, you know, some of the, the work that we were talking about earlier. Oh, for sure. In, in terms of just being playful and, and fun and silly. And, you know, it's interesting, too, to think about, like you were talking about, those different you know, environments, because that's one of the things that I think about relative to this time is, you know, who, who has the money for a $3,500 sculpture, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, these uh, things that you've kind of set up in a way that you've made affordable for, for, you know, people. So again, I think that's something that's cool, something that they certainly don't or didn't teach us about in graduate school. <laughs> least, oh my gosh. At least to my recollection. Um, no. <laughs> well, so again, just remind us before we're wrapping everything up, you know, where are all the places that people should check out your work and the places people can find me on. And it's the most, I guess, up to date. What I do is at the habitat shop on Instagram and it's the habitat shop with two P's because when I did the habitat shop, someone took the S H O P. So it's S H O P P E the old timey spelling. And I'm always doing like little stories, updates of what I'm making posts about the work that's for sale And that's, like I said, what I use the most to show people. I don't really do too much with Facebook and I know TikTok's a thing and (laughs) I need to do that eventually. But with two kids and living in the world right now, it's like, I just can't wrap my head around everything. I'm only one woman. (laughs) So (laughs) that's the best way to see it. And then I have my Etsy shop is the Habitat shop as well. And you can see that and you can look for things there. If you ever want to contact me about a special commission to sculpt something, people can totally do that. They can just message me on via Etsy or via the Habitat shop. All my information's on there so they can see that. Awesome. Well, again, I imagine that you're going to be busy and that's your, that's your outlook for the future. Busy making work. Yeah. I'm, I'm having fun with this. And like you said earlier, it's, it's, it's fun. And I need some fun right now because it was kind of a crazy couple of years and it was just so bleak. Like when I do sales and I'm out in these festivals, it's, it's very rewarding to watch people walk by because, you know, there's sometimes over a hundred, 200 vendors and people are just blasting through tents and people will stop at my tent and they'll look at it and they'll smile. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a, a kind way, you know, to, to give me like a thumbs up, like, oh, this is fun, you know, to like take time when people are just like being very hurried to look at it when they don't have to and say like, this is so much fun or give me a thumbs up or smile at me. It makes me, you know, that's rewarding in itself as well. Yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know that we knew each other a little bit in graduate school and now I feel like we know each other so much more. So thanks so much for taking the time today to talk to me. Well, Dave, I want to tell you, thank you for having me on your podcast. You are an incredible person. This has been a blast and I really I'm proud of you that you've been doing this podcast and just really like honing your sensibilities and becoming a really great interviewer. So thank you, Dave. 
Thanks to Kate for joining me. You can find a lot of her work in a variety of places. So her website is katherinekaminsky.com. You can find her work on Instagram at Kate underscore Kaminsky. And her shop on Instagram is The Habitat Shop and as well as Etsy. We'll have all of those linked on studiobreak.com, but be sure to follow her. She once again has work showing with the John Michael Kohler Art Center for the Midsummer Festival of Artists Online. So check that out. That's jmkac.org slash midsummer. And you can check out her work online from July 17th through the 24th. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit studiobreak.com and check out some of the other recent episodes that we've had, like Donovan Widmer, who is a metalsmith and based out of Fargo, North Dakota, or Paul Lockney from Brooklyn, who makes a wonderful variety of collage works, or, you know, recent artists that have graduated from MFA programs like Leah Schrettenthaler who made a series of works exploring the landscape of Hawaii, or Iranian artist Ziba Rajebi, who makes a series of abstractions based off of her memory of her homeland of Tehran. I could keep going on, but go to studiobreak.com and check out some of those other artists. There's tons of great ones up there, so go check it out. Each of our posts, once again, have images of the artist's artwork, links to the website so you can find more information, and of course listen right on studiobreak.com or click those links and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. If you would be so kind, you can always leave us reviews as that's helpful, or help spread the word via social media. It's really easy just to share an interview and someone's work. You can do that, of course, by liking and sharing via Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break, and of course on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. And of course, it's always great to hear from listeners there, so please feel free to chime in, say hello. I would like to thank Skylar Mail. He provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his work at SkylarMail.net. If you would like to see some of my paintings, go and visit DavidLinaway.com and you will be taken to uh, suburban utopia land. Go check that out at DavidLinaway.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at DavidLinaway and Twitter at DavidLinaway. So be sure and follow if you'd like. Say hello. And with those announcements out of the way, we are wrapped. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I hope that you are staying productive in your studio, staying safe. We'll talk to you real soon.